0: Good evening Dharma friends, I love the way that Bonte started us off last night, good evening Dharma friends, can you hear me, good, oh you want a little higher, is that better, a little better, that's better huh, I can hear it, it's not echoing, hello, hello, (laughs) <laughs> Does that work? Oh, so someone is saying still higher, huh? No? Okay, it's okay. okay. There's dukkha in everything. <laughs> so, tonight I want to talk about the se- second path factor of right intention but I want to start us off with, uh, you know, I'm a mixed race person and uh, part native heritage, Opelousas and Kushada, but I wanted to start off with a little um, indigenous wisdom here. So this is a story about an old Cherokee grandfather. An old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life He says, a fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continued, the other wolf is good. He has wisdom, joy, peace, patience, serenity, determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, truth, and compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on, going on inside you, grandson, and inside every person, too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And I know many of you know the answer to that. Which wolf will win? The old Cherokee grandfather said, the one you feed. And then I found this really beautiful, this really beautiful, another expression of the same wisdom from another old indigenous grandfather, Ajahn Chah. Is there anyone here from Thailand or Thai-American? Well, just wanna bow to that wisdom, to that tradition, our spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers. So this is what Ajahn Chah says. He says, this path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. The true meaning of this is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depth of our hearts. However, if the factors of the eightfold path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If maga, the eightfold path, is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If the defilements, if it, if it, It's the defilements that are powerful and brave while the path is feeble and frail. The defilements conquer our hearts. As dharma practice continues in the heart, these two factors, forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind. But it's just the path of dharma and the defilements struggling to win domination of the heart. The path guides and fosters our ability to see clearly. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their path, their strength, the path will be ru- routed as defilements take its place. These two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. It's sila samadhi panya and defilements. And this is really a um, fundamental understanding for the second path factor, for right intention or right thought. But before I talk about that, I just wanted to give uh, my, the way that I explain mindfulness. You know, as um, Ajahn Chah just said, all of these words don't really capture the truth of any of it, right? It's all fingers pointing at the moon. And so we can't really ever trust our conceptual mind to figure out what we're trying to do here. So the way I like to talk about it is, and actually I got this from one of my teachers, Rodney Smith, and I think this is very true, is that we all have two knowledge systems, right? We have two pretty distinct knowledge systems. We have our our right linear mind that's about concepts and quantitative analysis and um, rational thinking, rational linear thinking. And it's an important knowledge system. It's useful a lot of the time. And then we have an intuitive knowledge system, intuitive awareness knowledge system, and that knowledge system is, you know, isn't uh, isn't run on concepts or linear thinking at all. In fact, mindfulness is the uh, data collection instrument for our intuitive awareness. So mindfulness looks directly at experience. Uh, without, you know, maybe we'll use a word here and there to keep us connected or to um, try to acknowledge what we're seeing in the moment, but uh, mindfulness really looks at what's happening with bare attention, right? Uh, with bare awareness. And um, so mindfulness, if you think about this spectrum also of openness to our experience, mindfulness really sits at the middle between two extremes. On the one hand, we have denial. It's like we can feel when there might be a um, a uh, something that wants to arise in us that may, may be unpleasant. And I think I think Joseph calls it we give it a sideway glance. Right? It's like oh, something's coming. And we actually even just slightly shift away from that experience. On the other hand, we have obsession. We have something that comes up in the mind. Maybe it has pleasant vedana, maybe it's pleasant. And we just get on that train and ride it as far as it will go. And then mindfulness really sits in the middle of these two things. It doesn't repress anything. And it doesn't indulge in anything. It sits in the middle of, you know, allowing whatever wants to arise to arise. You know, it, it, um, it creates the field, a safe and welcoming field for whatever wants to arise. to arise. But it doesn't get on that train. It, it stays in the middle. Uh, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, you know it rests in the middle between privilege there's certain experiences that we want to privilege as real and i and mine and self and then there's in, we have certain intolerance to other experiences that we you know we should be exempt from suffering for some reason we're exempt from those experiences but mindfulness sits in the middle of that and that's why it's so useful because what it does it allows us to see what's arising in the moment and it allows us to act on our deepest values rather than to be pulled around by our mental habit patterns but uh you know one thing about mindfulness is that you know it's it's you know available to all of us i'm sure you know, many of you actually who have been sitting for a very long time have periods where your mindfulness is really just wonderfully clear and strong. But I want to just be clear about what mindfulness is because we can be aware of experience that is in our, uh, that is in our heart-mind. We can be aware of something that's happening, but um, awareness as one of our uh, young... Uh, a Burmese teacher says, Myanmar teacher says that uh, awareness is not enough. Awareness alone is not enough. And we all know this. I'm sure I'm just telling you stuff that you all know. And in fact, I should have asked you to please just, don't even think about what I'm saying. Just let it hit your intuitive awareness. Just let it hit intuitive awareness because, you know, there's, yeah. But anyway. So uh, in addition to awareness of what's happening in the moment, we also want to cultivate something called sampajanya or clear comprehension. And this clear comprehension actually has four components to it. And the first one actually is uh, very much associated with uh, right intention or right thought because the first element of sampajanya or clear comprehension is to recognize what our motivation is in the moment. What is our intention in the moment? So that is something that, you know, it's good to see whether we can see that with our mindfulness. Those mental objects that come and we hold in mindfulness, we recognize what they are and can we recognize what they're motivated by The second um, component of Sampajanya is suitability, you know, knowing uh, the right time and place for everything. So one way that this might be reflected in your practices, you might have thoughts of the future or the past, and knowing, you know, if it really, this is the most appropriate time to entertain those thoughts, to bring wisdom to that. Another element is domain, to know what your domain is. And then the uh, fourth one is, in our mindfulness are we seeing the truth of the three characteristics in whatever is arising in our field of awareness? Are we seeing its impermanent nature? Are we seeing clearly its unsatisfactoriness. And are we seeing clearly how everything we experience is common to humanity? Everything we experience is exactly what everyone else experiences. It's not personal. It's not ours. So this is what the Buddha said about that. He said, Abandon what is unwholesome, O yogis. One can abandon the unwholesome, O yogis. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not not ask you to do it but as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, abandoning unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O yogis. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome." He was really smart. I like to reflect on the Buddha's, the Buddha's wisdom and compassion. And that really shows the compassion of the Buddha. And I understand how sometimes we can feel like the Buddha was all wisdom. But I was actually sitting one of the months at Spirit Rock and I had this just this vision of how the relative and the absolute separated. You know how you get these insights and you know you try to describe them in words but they never do justice right but i had this insight of the relative and the absolute separating and i realized that all the wisdom of the absolute is for i mean the wisdom is about how to end suffering it's not about anything else There's this one um, scientist for those of you who like science. He's actually a philosopher. And he says that all human interest, or all human knowledge has an interest behind it. You know, there's no such thing as knowledge that does, isn't for a purpose. You know, the Enlightenment you know, this, the European Enlightenment was about, was really about how to harness nature for our advantage. It separated humans from nature. But the Buddha's wisdom and all of the, um, all of us, all of the uh, bodhisattvas and Buddhas since, uh, the time of Shakyamuni, teach us this because, I mean, you know, they ask us and show us how to cultivate this wisdom specifically to end suffering. So it has at its base a, uh, a move towards compassion. It is for compassion. So that's really beautiful about this little um, sutta, this little sutta piece Um, you know, of what the Buddha told all the yogis. So he's telling all of us right now. The other thing I really love about this piece is that he's got a lot of confidence in us, right? He says, we can do this. He said, I wouldn't ask you to do this if you couldn't do this. So I think we, for me, it's really wonderful to uh, reflect on that. So speaking about science, I was, um, I'm in the middle while I'm here and, uh, you know, thank you all for letting me sit in on your interviews and coming to see me. I appreciate the opportunity for the training. It's deeply meaningful to me. But I'm also still doing a little bit of work at my office and... I found this article that I sent to one of my colleagues. Uh, the name of the article is... The name of the article is Mental Health in a Social Context. And it just came out. It was, came out in October of 2014. And they have this diagram in there. And let me see if I can like, describe the diagram. In the middle there's this box that says individual attributes and behavior. And then there's a you know double-sided arrow here that says social and economic status. And here, environmental factors. And they all come down to well-being. So I thought that it was a pretty Buddhist diagram for 2014. Because at the center of it is really individual attributes and behaviors, what we are doing, you know, what you know, what our values are, what we're motivated by, how we spend our time, is the basis for well being. And you know, this acknowledges that there are environmental factors out there and there are social and economic factors out there. But it really I mean the what the Buddha taught us and what's so Um, reassuring is that those factors definitely influence us but we also have uh, you know we have a system to purify our uh, purify our heart and mind and to build up habit patterns that are producing that produce our own and others happiness and that's what science says too So I wanted to, uh, now I want to just say something about what are the elements of the the second path factor. And um, I love the way that Ajahn Chah speaks about it. These are forces in us. These are mental habit patterns. So... wise intention or wise thought is a force that we cultivate. And once it's strong, it has its own momentum. It's what really is uh, delivering us to awakening. All of the eight path factors together, maga. I love love the, uh, the idea of maga the path and its momentum bringing us to freedom. So the first, there's three elements of wise intention or wise thought, and it's the second pass factor. The first one is right view, and these two are the wisdom elements of the Eightfold Path. So this is wisdom we're talking about, how to cultivate wisdom how what we're doing right now is cultivating wisdom so the first element of wise intention is thought of as renunciation renunciation of worldly pleasures or the virtue of selflessness which is opposed to attachment selfishness and possessiveness so renunciation that really gets a bad rap in the West, doesn't it? Renunciation. But one way to think about it is that what we're doing is we are renouncing the promise of greed. We're renouncing, you know, what accumulation, we're renouncing accumulation as a source of happiness and fulfillment, essentially. And I'm sure that, you know, all of us can think about what we, what our mental habit patterns are towards accumulation. What are they? And I'm sure you've been kind of hit in the face with them, right? Because that's what comes up during intensive practice. I mean, that's the beauty of it. It's an airing out and a seeing clearly of what our habit patterns are. My habit patterns, I'll share some, are... I love to get a deal on stuff. I love sales. <laughs> you know, if something is an additional forty percent off the discount clearance price, I'm there. <laughs> and you know, it's and um, sometimes if I can angle it right, I go shopping for other people, other people that I know that I know need stuff. <laughs> 'Cause I'm gonna tell you I don't need any more stuff, that's for sure. But you know, that's what we are and you know the reflection on how much stuff that we have and how how happy it has made us is pretty interesting. You know, I mean there's whole economic systems built around it. I'm thinking of eBay. <laughs> or Amazon, or particularly eBay. We accumulate stuff, we accumulate and we accumulate, and then we realize, I don't really like this stuff anymore. And then we try to get rid of it. We try to sell it to somebody else. (laughs) And if nobody wants it, we get really mad. (laughs) Don't people understand how happy this will make them if they have it for a little while? but it'll only of course make them happy for a little while cuz that's all that's all it did for us so think about anything that you have accumulated a new car the best job you ever got the most wonderful partner anything was that the last thing you ever needed Was that the the end of wanting, of craving? Because all of your desires were totally satisfied? It's good to reflect on that. Accumulation, just how happy can it make us? And then the opposite of that, generosity. How happy does generosity make us? Wow. Wow. And I think the second, the second element of wise intention or wise thought, which is um, loving kindness, goodwill, and benevolence, as opposed as opposed to hatred, ill will, or aversion. So the second element of wise intention is to cultivate loving kindness and goodwill and benevolence and to let go of aversion, hatred, and ill will. So I had a recent really interesting experience just a few days ago. So I came here from a pretty busy schedule and uh, just, I mean, I was just feeling so much You know, I really believe that IMS is the mothership for me. It's the mothership. And there's just so much loving kindness and goodwill and benevolence um, at the root of everything that's done here. And so I got a really big, huge infusion of this loving kindness and goodwill. And um, on Thursday, I actually flew to Washington DC on Wednesday night to go to a meeting of the National Institutes of Health. They were having a, a special forum on American Indian and Alaska Native research. And it was like a pretty, you know, there was about 100 people there, but they had invited 30 people and 70 people asked if they could come. And it was interesting because there were people there that I had major grudges against, you know, having worked and you know with all of them for 30 years and i was just feeling so much loving kindness and goodwill (laughs) i wasn't you know i'm going to be honest with you i was walking around and said i am so loving (laughs) and then i would say oh look at that another identity you know another clinging clinging to our positive qualities it was interesting to see that, but that was just a thought. I just noted it, up oh, clinging, clinging. And then I could still be happy with just how good it felt. And when I gave my talk, I actually gave a nod to, like, everybody in the room. Like, you know, I didn't say, I don't hate you anymore, but <laughs> at, at this minute, at this minute, I'm not feeling that resentment that, of the thing that we had, but um i did you know i was able to i was actually i had a lot of gratitude in my heart and i was able to actually express gratitude and um and you know the the uh, woman who's in charge of the director of the institute who was putting on the event there's something very loving about her too she just seeded the whole place with love When I went up to her to hug her, the first thing she says is, Bonnie, I love you. I mean, who says that to people? It was so beautiful, and it really just allowed me. It also was, you know, her just expression of love. She doesn't care, she's going to love people. And, uh, you know, that has an impact on the energetic field. So I think that is one of the biggest generosities that we could give anyone is to just offer that loving-kindness and that goodwill. So I want to read a little poem about that. Humility as nothing to defend. I find truth in anything Anyone ever says about me, so nobody can be my enemy. Call me a fraud, I can find it. Call me a liar, I can find it. Call me a failure, I can find it. Call me unreasonable, irresponsible, ignorant, deluded, full of ego, totally unenlightened, the worst being in the world, I can find all of it. As consciousness, I can find anything. Like you, I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and no image to protect. Every possible facet of human experience is available here. This is truly the end of war. It is the end of protecting and defending a mirage called me. So next time you get triggered by something someone says to you or about you, ask yourself this, What am I defending? This inquiry is the key to unimaginable peace. Deep gratitude to anyone who has ever given me any kind of feedback. And, you know, that's what's so, uh, and, you know, that's one of the the um, right understandings that we have as all of these things come up as we see all of these uh, roots you know root poisons of greed hatred and delusion and how they're manifesting in us at this moment or in this mind at this moment and um, also all of the beautiful qualities their opposite generosity and loving kindness So the first of the three elements of wise intention is renunciation or understanding just how happy greed is going to make us or accumulation. The second one is loving kindness, goodwill, or benevolence. Uh, Cultivating that and letting go of hatred or ill will or aversion. Oh, the other thing I want to say is... um, I love this new research out about love. Actually, Barbara Fredrickson, many of you probably know who she is. She's a positive psychology guru, you know, and she's a very good friend of the Dharma. She's a Dharma practitioner. And she has this book out called Love 2.0. And I love that book. Um, I'm one of those, uh, this mind, one of my propensities is to just feel very lonely feel a lot of loneliness and self-pity actually i had a wonderful insight into my own self-pity while i was sitting where you guys are sitting i had a big old boom like wow (laughs) look at that self-pity and um what you know what it was so wonderful about seeing these habitual habit patterns in our minds that are so ubiquitous, they like fill. they seem to fill the entire space of awareness that it's hard to right get the edges around them. But uh, my image is that once we see these habitual habit patterns, which are difficult to see because they just seem so normal. They seem like the water that the fish swims in, right? The water can't see the fish. I mean, the fish can't see the water. The water might be able to see the fish. But anyway, so <laughs> my image is of, of putting a picture frame that mindfulness, good insight is like a picture frame around these habitual habits, right? These ha- mental habit patterns. And then with this brilliant mindfulness, we hold it in the middle. We, you know, we don't repress anything as it comes up. Wow, there it is again, there's that self-pity. And, but we don't jump on that train. And, you know, just seeing it clearly, we don't need to do anything else. All we need to do is see it clearly. And what it does is, you know, we see the suffering in it. We see the, uh, you know, what it does to our sense of agency or, you know, what any other negative uh, habit pattern does. And uh, we don't let it go. Who's we? We don't let it go. Wisdom lets it go. We extract the wisdom out of the situation with our mindfulness, our intuitive data gathering tool, and then wisdom lets it go. It's so interesting the way that happens. So uh, Barbara Fredrickson has this book out about love, and she said, and you know, the, the take home message is, there's no such thing as everlasting love. I hate to break it to you (laughs) but uh the good news is is that what we actually uh, know as love which is a physical sensation in the body um, actually an activation of the vagus nerve and you know I won't get into the neurobiology of it but she does in this book she says that that cannot be maintained overall you know that that comes and goes with anyone we're in intimate relationship with and it's good to know that you know that does come and go and um but what was really sweet about it too is that you can actually have that sensation of love with anybody at any time you can actually uh be at the checkout counter and have a really meaningful interaction with someone and just for that moment really feel like, "Wow, I just love that person," and you know have that sense of love and it's available that you know the physiology you know the f- physical sensation of love is available if we cultivate that in our heart mind and um Another thing I read recently is that that love for, you know, our partner and our family and our children, even though we know that, you know, there's a lot of expectations there, it also, but, you know, it's very useful because it's the basis for uh, love of all, you know, the, um, the metta and the compassion and mudita and upeka that is without bias and without prejudice. It's the, it is the foundation of us, you know, being able to wish or have that, um, that attitude of universal love towards everyone. Because what we realize, you know, the other thing that we realize in this practice is that, you know, it isn't personal. We are all connected, we are all relatives. We are all relatives, how could we not be relatives? I mean, look at what's happening to our beloved planet with you know the um, environmental pressures going on right now. And we think that we're not related, that what happens here doesn't affect what happens here. So the third element of um, right, thought or right intention is harmlessness or compassion. And one way to understand that is just through the precepts, the trainings of, you know, giving up what is harmful, harmlessness or compassion. So we abstain from killing any living creatures. We abstain from stealing from causing harm through sexual behavior, from causing harm through speech, or from just numbing our pain in a way that makes us heedless, And we know that this is a huge offering of safety to people, right? You know, we, we know we have people in our, in our life that just aren't safe people to be around. But, you know, a lot of times we don't even consider, well, maybe we all consider who we hang around. I'm sure that we all do. And we're ho- you know, we hope to teach the people that we love about that that's not a little, that is not a little consideration of who you spend your time with. I mean, that's why, you know, the Buddha talked about Sangha. And I'm sure you all know the story of Ananda saying to the Buddha, Buddha... Holy company is half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Holy company is the whole of the holy life. So those are the three elements of right thought and right intention. It is to just realize or you know renunciation but more deeply to understand the nature of greed and accumulation and just how happy that can make us and then to understand ill will and envy and you know aversion essentially aversion and uh, to let that go realize the suffering in that and to cultivate its opposite, love and loving kindness. And then finally, um, to understand that we let go of harm, causing harm, and we offer compassion and safety in, in its stead. And, you know, I want to reflect for a second on that that is not just a personal Uh, You know, those three things are not just personal. They're also bigger social forces in our lives, like that, my little graph that I found. You know, the social and economic and the environmental. Uh, Because greed, hatred, and delusion, it's institutionalized. You know, our present economic system is institutionalized greed when you think about it the decisions that, you know, people make and corporations make that, you know, have accumulation as the bottom line with, you know, disregard for harm or anything else. And our military system is institutionalized ill will. You know, and just how many places and the things that we've done in the name of control. It's shocking, really. And then our corporate media, corporate media system is institutionalized delusion. (laughs) (laughs) Can anybody disagree with that? (laughs) Wow. I mean, they don't even have real people on those magazines right they have to photoshop them real people just are not good enough so how do we how do we work with right intention and mindfulness so i want to uh, borrow some of the wisdom from Asada or maybe it was I don't know Alexis Santos. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Channeling Utejania, but anyway. So, how do we work with uh, right skillful thoughts? What are skillful skillful thoughts regarding practicing awareness? So, it's to reflect on things like meditation is the work of the mind. You know, one, uh, I've been reading a lot of Abhidhamma and listening to Abhidhamma, and they understand the entire experience as consciousness, uh, materiality, and mentality, right? It's just those three things rolling along. So, you know, the um, way that we can look at how, uh, you know, we are come into contact with something in our mind. Something arises in our mind, or particularly through seeing, we come into contact with something we've seen, and just the, you know, the uh, the uh, creation of an identity and all of that that goes with that. It's all just an impersonal process. So one of the ways to work with that, to work with right thought and right intention, is to. Um, you know, know that all of that happens in the mind. That is the work of the mind, and that awareness of what's happening in the moment isn't enough. We, you know, another thing that we want to look at, to you know, we want to look at is not just what we're aware of, not just the object. In fact, the object is really secondary. The object of what our mindfulness is holding is secondary. Really, what is just as important is how the mind is holding it. You know, is the mind holding this with um, ease and acceptance or is it aversion or grasping? That is just probably, I don't want to say more important, but definitely a, uh, a um, element of right mindfulness is to know that too. In fact, you know, pff, how lucky am I? I get to sit in on three hours of Joseph Goldstein's interviews every single day. Wow. I don't know what, you know, happened for me to have that good karma, but it is really wonderful. And he said something the other day that just was like, boom. Even though I had had heard it a thousand times, and I'll tell you what it was. Don't you want to know what it was? (laughs) And um, I don't, I think, I know who he said it to. I hope it's okay that I repeat it, but it wasn't about a particular thing. And that was someone was talking about and let me just say, I mean, I am hearing some exquisite practice everyone, every single person comes in and says things and you know, it's like you're seeing all these things kind of equally, but there is you know, you'll say, someone will say something like, oh, yeah, the breakfast was good. And yeah, there's really nobody walking around. It's just causes and conditions. It's like, even the relationship to the insights is really interesting. It's, there's not a lot of even clinging to the insights. It's so beautiful. But anyway, this is what Joseph said. He said, he said, I've been practicing. In the last six months, I've changed the way that I practice concentration. And it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've changed something, Joseph Goldstein, in the six months. What, what, what was it? And he said that now, what he does is he, uh, and you know, the classic uh, definition or instructions for doing concentration practices to feel the sensations of the breath right here. And he says, you know, uh, awareness is all something is always being known, right? And awareness is knowing what is being known. So he just relaxes and brings knowing to here so it's here but he said what he really looks at is the balance of his mind he feels the breath here but he's looking at the balance of his mind and that you know i'm sure all of us have heard that a thousand times but just to make that like a dual focus of awareness i thought was really interesting and really um, yeah, something that, you know, a great reminder. So that's one way that we uh, work with right intention is to um, understand if what, what's in our mind is skillful or unskillful, and that's the wisdom principle is to know whether it's producing happiness or producing suffering. You know, another um, aspect of using right intention in our mindfulness practice is to see the functions of the mind as, you you know, just as the eyes see and the mouth chews and speaks and, you know, what it does. Uh, The mind has its own functions too and to see the functions of the mind. So one of the functions of the mind is to feel vedana, right? But vedana is a verb, it's not a noun. To feel pleasant happening as a verb and unpleasant happening as a verb and, and neither pleasant or unpleasant or neutral happening as a verb. Another element of the mind is that it perceives things You know, it names things, and based on history and insight, it can name what it sees in the mind. And a lot of time, it's not seen correctly. Vipalasas, I love that teaching, that Buddhist teaching of the distortions of perception. So that's another thing that the mind does. And then we can see intentions. You know, just even being present, we can just walk around and have... Like a general mindfulness, and just see little intentions for every little thing that are de- that are often dependent on what the physical environment is doing right there's a stair there, so it's an inten- uh, an intention to go down the stair, a very neutral thing or um, and so intentions actually are functional activity and and don 't necessarily have a skillful or unskillful it's the uh, mental states that inform the intention that drive the intention that are unwholesome or wholesome and then investigating practice this is my this is my favorite part or to investigate understanding and this is often an unacknowledged um, an unacknowledged assumption of what we're looking at one is the assumption or the not seeing clearly Uh, impermanence or a Nietzsche. And that's usually with the assumption of what we're looking at that it's gonna be this way forever. Have you ever thought that? You probably have and might not have even realized you thought it, right? That's the tricky part of these things. That, you know, that's one of the things that are so... You know, we, you know, they're so normal in our mind, we can't even get a, uh, the edges around that, uh, that, that um, misperception of impermanence. So that's something to look at when you're struggling with something. You know, do I think this is going to last forever? And then the second, uh, the second assumption that we can investigate is. For my experience in this moment to be okay, it should be pleasant. Does anybody think that? So, it's like we, we're exempt from all of the suffering of the world for some reason. It's, you know, it happens to everybody else, but if it happens to me, it's unnormal. It's, you know, shouldn't be happening. For some reason, my suffering is against the laws of nature, but everyone else's is, that's the way it is. So that's something to investigate is, you know, does my experience have to be pleasant to be okay? And then another one is, I am making this happen or this is happening to me. I am making this happen. Wow, that's a lot of pressure. And, you know, we know that whatever is happening in the moment, whatever is arising in our mindfulness in the moment is due to, to causes and conditions that we have no control over. In this moment, we have no control over them. What we do have some agency in, we can set the attention to open with Uh, kindness and compassion to whatever's happening in the moment rather than to hold it with aversion or with greed you know to know how we're holding the object that is a really important aspect of sampajanya of uh, of clear comprehension of what's happening in the moment So what happens is when we have these deep understandings, if you know, when as we cultivate this mind and heart, or as magga, the Eightfold Path, gets strengthened, uh, and we uproot these causes of suffering and we create the causes of happiness to to unfold. And we see the true nature of existence, we see the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned experience. We see the impermanence of all conditioned experience and we see the selfless unfolding of experience. What happens is that um, this deep, so this is what um, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, This penetrating view of the nature of existence brings with it a restructuring of values which sets the the mind moving towards goals commensurate with the new vision. So what it does is we have this deep understanding and it changes our values. So our value is for freedom and for generosity and for love, and for wisdom, and for clear comprehension. We understand our interconnectedness with everybody. And, you know, that's how we live our life. And that, that, those values uh, get, um, manifest in new goals that we have for ourselves. And, um, so, I just want to end with this um, this little piece on expectations versus aspiration because we can want, you know, very deeply for uh, wisdom to unfold. We can, you know, grasp at it and cling at it, you know, and just think that, uh, that, you know, we might have the impression that that kind of grasping is actually skillful. And I love what Gil Fransdell says here this, about it. This is expectation versus aspiration. If we want to base our lives on aspiration rather than craving, we have to give ourselves time to discover our deepest wishes. Aspiration often arises from a non-discursive part of our heart and mind. Craving and clinging are often tied to the discursive world of planning, thinking, and fantasy while aspiration is associated with inner stillness and relaxation. Sometimes it is only during long contemplative periods that people discover what they most want to base their life on. It is also important to respect both ourselves and our aspirations. It's easy to dismiss both our aspirations and the search for them. Believing that we are not good enough, capable, or deserving can leave us feeling unfulfilled and regretful. In the world of aspiration, it is far better to try and fail than to never try. So let's sit for a moment. May all beings realize their deepest aspiration